Hello and welcome along to Outside In. I'm Wes Rashid and today we have Eniola Aluko, the former professional football player and now sporting director of Angel City FC and author as well. When I thought of guests, by the way, of who I want to be on this podcast, Eniola was the first name that sprung to mind here. And if you listen to this full episode, this is a story of dual heritage embracing her hyphenated identity which she's had to come to terms with throughout her life. And this is someone that I can totally relate to. And if you think about it, a lot of us, me and probably you included that are listening to this, have dual heritage. And it's had this conflict going on between one side of your heritage, maybe you're British born like me, against the other, where like your parents or, or maybe where your culture is originally from. So I hope that this episode is something that will resonate with you. Hello, Annie. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. What I'd like to do is let's start by taking us back to the early years. What was it like for you growing up as a British Nigerian person in Birmingham during the 80s and 90s? I was very much sort of the girl that played football. That was a big part of my identity in my local estate in Kings Norton, Birmingham. And I grew up with, with a lot of boys in the, in the local area. There wasn't many girls around and I sort of gravitated to the boys and, and I really built my identity really around football. And so I was a popular kid, you know, really enjoyed my childhood sort of playing out and having sport as really the my passion point. You know, in terms of sort of the Nigerian side, I, I heard Yoruba spoken in, in my house by my mom and my other relatives, but we never really spoke it. Um, I wish we did, actually, because I understand everything in the language, but I'm not very confident speaking it. And I haven't necessarily developed the sort of intonations that come with Yoruba, but I didn't really embrace the side, my the Nigerian side until very, very much later when I went to university. Um, and started to travel and started to have enough money to travel myself. So I was very much sort of the, the young Brummy girl who played football that then went on to play for England. And it's, it's, it's really interesting for me when I think about identity. You know, we're, we're all such layered and complex and multi-hyphenated people in different ways. And sometimes you don't embrace certain sides of your identity until much, much later in life. Sometimes you suppress it, sometimes you are embarrassed about it, or, you know, that it's not, you don't exist in this, in this sort of like, this is my identity, this is who I am. Sometimes it takes a little while. And now as a, you know, 35-year-old woman, I feel much more rounded in, in, in who I am, you know, in terms of both sides of my identity and, and then other aspects of that as well. So I'd like to touch on uh, your book, They Don't Teach This which is a great book. I've, I've read it front to back a couple Thank of times. Thank you so much. And one of the reasons why I love it so much is you're very open and honest about some of the challenges and adversities that you faced. Um, but there's a chapter in the book that really stands out for me, and that's called Embrace the Hyphen. Yeah. So let's start there. What does embrace, embracing the hyphen mean? So I think that my experience has been that I, I really kind of encountered a whole nother side of my identity later on in life. Whereas I had, a much, I was much more comfortable with one side of my identity much earlier on in life. 
And so embrace the hyphen is really about saying, embracing the multidimensional sides of ourself, embracing the, the things that make us so layered and interesting and complex rather than being stuck in one box that makes you feel comfortable because society has kind of created that box for you. So whether you're a mother and a businesswoman, whether you're British Nigerian or Arabic English or you know, an entrepreneur that also plays football, there may be so many different intonations of your hyphenated identity, but it's about embracing all sides of that. Because often we live in a world where it's like, you have to be that or you have to be this. You have to believe in that. And if you believe in that, you cannot believe in this. There's no nuance, there's no balance. So embrace the hyphen is really about saying, embrace all sides of yourself that make you layered and, and interesting. And in, you know, in the book, I talked a lot about, you know, the British Nigerian side, but it could be anything. And it's, it's something I feel very passionately about. I want to continue to develop, you know, a, a brand that really celebrates that through travel, a brand called Hyphen. So yeah, that's what the, the, the chapter was about. And I, I really, I really buzz off it when people say that they enjoyed that chapter, because that was my favorite chapter too. That's great. How did meeting other British Nigerian people change your perspective on your own heritage? I, I don't think it changed my perspective. It just made me really celebrate it in a way that, you know, you feel part of, proud of your heritage. I think the pride comes out even more when you are with people that are the same as you, who also celebrate that heritage. And we celebrate it through food, through music. I, I think that having Nigerian friends, British Nigerian friends, makes me feel so proud of, of what they're doing and what they're achieving. You know, Nigerians are very ambitious people. You know, we have a, there's a saying in Nigeria called Nigerians don't carry last or no, they carry last, which effectively means like Nigerians are never going to be last, you know, that we're always trying to be at the front of the queue. And, um, you know, it, it's, <laughs> sure. it's a culture that really is aspirational. It's really ambitious and, Achievement is a big part of the culture. So uh, celebrating that achievement, defying the odds, you know, particularly in British culture where being a minority in, in Britain has its own challenges, but it also has its advantages. You know, I, I always say, having lived in the US, having lived in Italy, you, the UK for me is the best place to live if you are a minority. It's not perfect, but I think that one of the best places to live. I, it's not perfect, but I think that the culture really allows people to really thrive in the way they want to thrive if you put your mind to it, if you work hard. So, yeah, I think that's the way I try to celebrate with other British Nigerians. That's great. And there was a YouTube video that I watched called Side Hustles back in 2020. Can you describe to me you know, what that project was about and what it meant to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, that project was really actually off the back of my book launch. And it was actually about launching Hyphen, which is the brand that I launched inspired by the chapter Embrace the Hyphen. So Hyphen is a brand that I've, you know, I've launched and I own. And Side Hustles was really a, a, a series about footballers who have side hustles, have brands, have you know, different things that they do off the pitch that, again, celebrates the sort of multidimensional side of footballers. So 
it linked into me really exposing to the world what I wanted to do with Hyphen. It's not fully developed yet because I've had so many other things that I'm doing. <laughs> but um, it's definitely something I want to focus on in the next few years. Good fun though? Oh, it's great fun. Yeah, I loved it. I, I love that series as well. And I think it really positions footballers in a way that, you know, we don't just play football, we can do other things as well. Just going back to the early days, you had a nickname, I believe, called Eddie. Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? I think it was just my desire to be one of the boys. And again, I think this ties back into how comfortable I was with my Nigerian, my Nigerianness when I was younger. I wasn't that comfortable with it. I felt that my name was just too difficult to say, so I couldn't be bothered correcting people, I guess. So I just said, I'll oh, just call me Eddie because I wanted to be one of the boys. That's that's kind of where it came from and it stuck. I mean, it, it sounds like any, but yeah. not quite. And it stuck for a while, actually. You know, the boys used to knock on my door and say, is Eddie coming out? And my mum would be like, who's Eddie? I don't have a child called Eddie. And uh, then then I told my mum, no, no, they call me Eddie because it's just easier. And, and she laughed. Um, so, yeah, that's how, it, that's how it came about. Would you say that that's an example of you perhaps shying away from your heritage? Oh, for sure. And not knowingly, not, not, not knowingly, but just, I just wanted to be part of the boys. I just wanted to be included in, in the, in the, in the group with the boys, you know, that's, that, I think it's more an indication of that more than anything. Going back to the book, it's quite evident that role models really have inspired you. Who were those role models and what sort of inspiration did they give you? So Serena Williams was a big role model for me. You know, when I was 10 years old, I, you know, I started watching tennis and Serena was playing and the Williams sisters were playing and I wanted beads in my hair like them. And it really allowed me to see black women in in a positive light on the world stage. And without knowing it, it kind of gave me license really to play tennis and play football and, and not feel too odd about it. So Serena Williams was a big reference point for me. She's actually, you know, she's attached to Angel City, the club I work for. So it was just, I, I just started realising how full circle my life was in, te- in terms of like at 10 years old being inspired by Serena and now I'm sort of affiliated with the club that she owns. So she was a big one. I, I really had this weird obsession with world leaders when I was young. So I used to read up a lot about um, like Hillary Clinton and Nelson Mandela was a big one for me. Growing up in the 90s, obviously him just coming out of prison and you know the, the post-apartheid era, like I was very aware of his significance as a leader, which then made me read about other world leaders. So yeah, I, um, those two are the ones that stand out for me. Yeah, that's great. And uh, what I love about that, yes, you've gone full circle with Serena Williams being an investor in the LA club, Angel City FC, that you're currently sporting director with. Do you think that helped you raise your ambitions about what you wanted to achieve in both football and you went on to be become a qualified lawyer as well? In terms of like my ability to believe I could achieve as well in football, it gave me the sort of belief that I could achieve in sport. Women's football was not on TV at all at that time. So my closest reference point was tennis in terms of like women's sport, visible women's sport. So I guess it just gave me the the belief that I could be visible too at some point. 
um, because I loved football. I wasn't as good at tennis as I was at football. And it just, it just normalized it for me. I mean, when I was growing up, you saw a lot more minorities in football than you do now. I guess sort of the, the money in the game has meant that some of the sort of inner city kids, if you want to call it that, or lower socioeconomic families with kids that play football have kind of been sort of excluded a little bit. So for me as a black girl, seeing black women winning in a sort of white space like Wimbledon, I didn't realize it at the time, but like now I realize that actually it kind of gave me the license to be a minority that was doing well in the UK in, in her sport. Remember in the book you mentioned, I believe there was a career counselor that tried to talk you down in trying to achieve your set ambitions. And I love the fact that you could see past that and you continue to try to be as ambitious as possible to fulfill your potential. One of those areas, as you mentioned, is you know the 102 caps that you played for England, which has nurtured a clearly a sense of resilience in you to keep pursuing you know, your potential. So can you explain to us how being involved in sport has nurtured that sense of resilience in you? I think the sense of resilience really comes from my family. It comes from knowing that I I come from a family of achievers. My grandfather was a leading economist in, in, in Nigeria. My father was a senator and um, had a successful career in politics. My maternal grandfather was one of the leading registrars of the universities in Nigeria. My mother was a successful entrepreneur slash businesswoman. My brother's a professional footballer. So if someone's sitting there telling me that you can't do this and you can't do that, it just doesn't sit right with me because I haven't been surrounded by failure in my life. I've been surrounded by people who've always achieved something beyond maybe the their expectation or other people's expectations of them I've been surrounded by education I've been surrounded by intelligence and entrepreneurship so I think my resilience in those moments where people are trying to project failure onto you or trying to project their own limitations of you on onto you it just becomes a bit of a defiance because I think well that's just not my reality so I think that that whether it's, you know, the England coach or, you know, it's the careers advisor in college, it it doesn't really matter. I think my message to a lot of people is always like, well, that person's view of what you should or shouldn't do is their view. It's not that it's not your reality. It's not the gospel. So it's the most important thing is your view of you and what you do with that and how it empowers you to do whatever you want to do because I think the sad thing is a lot of people let other people's view of them dictate what they do and they end up never achieving what they can can achieve. And the whole time, that person who projected their own failure is projecting their own insecurities onto you. Now, again, I didn't know all of this until much later in life when I had really time to reflect, but now I know that's what I try to tell young, young girls. I try to tell a lot of people particularly in, you know, ethnic minorities who are working in corporate spaces or working predominantly white spaces to say, well, hold on, there are systems in place that are deliberately meant to keep you in, 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 in your box and in your place. 
but it's not the gospel, it's not the truth. It, you may be able to change that, change the status quo. Don't allow that to limit you as much as you can. And it's very, very difficult because these systems are deliberately built to keep certain people in certain places, but ultimately it's down to you to figure out how to defy that or change that or scale that or achieve more than you know what maybe society expects you to achieve. Part of that resilience is also having to work through your own challenges and you know you've taken a few hits uh, along the way. Women's football when you first started playing right the way up to I think 2012 um, the GB Olympics team it, it wasn't so prevalent so you had to pay to play as an example when you first start playing football but you found a way to do that whilst also training to be a lawyer but I take it you're a goal-orientated person any <laughs> uh, yeah I am and um, I'm a person that just wants to do things that make me feel alive and valued and passionate about what I'm doing. How hard was that though? Yeah, it was really hard. I mean, you know, training to be a lawyer and playing was difficult because I had to kind of balance two very demanding um, things. But becoming a lawyer I knew was going to really set me up for the future um, in a way that um, allowed me to really understand how to navigate, you know, a lot of different things for other people, but also for myself, you know. If you are, you know, if if you are a person that um, understands your rights, understands what's wrong and what's right, what's doesn't quite feel fair, you're less likely to be violated. And the law really allowed me to understand the boundaries that people cross and the boundaries that people stay within. But it also allowed me to do that for other people. So representing other people is speaking on their behalf often when they don't even know if they're being violated or they're being the contract's not right or they're not being paid well enough or all of these things allow you to say no I can help you there that doesn't that doesn't seem right and and my legal training allowed me to do that just touching on that there was an incident where you helped increase the the salary cap for the England players as well yeah it's just worth mentioning that too can you talk us through that that situation yeah, I, th- I think after the 2008 World Cup, there came a point where I think the players sat down and were like, well, it's costing us to play for England. You know, a lot of us had to take unpaid leave. A lot of people were working sort of two, three jobs whilst representing their country. And it, it just wasn't sustainable. And so, you know, we talked about as a group, okay, how do we improve this? And I said, well, we need to write, you know, we need to write a letter. We need to demand as a group that salaries are increased, you know, on the, you know, on the side of the players. And I worked with the PFA to do that and it it was done. It was achieved. And I think it was probably the first time ever that the England team, women's team came together and said, OK, I think we deserve more. You know, we'd qualified for the World Cup. We got to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. So it wasn't a disaster. So we all felt that we deserved more and I was kind of the leading voice with my legal background to, to explain why. Yeah, that's great. And for context, you, know, you were, you're getting 40, 40 pounds a week, I believe. Yes. You managed to increase that salary to about 16 grand or something. Yes. And, 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 and really that's been the baseline of significant increases over the last 
10 years. Um, you know, now the women's team, I'm sure, are being paid very, very well. You know, obviously now winning the Euros, I'm sure they would have got really, really healthy bonuses that are life-changing. You know, you can put a deposit down on your house or, you know, those are the types of things that, you know, players want to be able to say, okay, I'm playing for this. I'm able to help my family, you know, whatever that may be. You know, so so it needed to happen at some point and I'm just glad I was part of the, the initial stages of, you know, just improving and professionalizing the women's game on the England side. That's great. Now, I want to talk about the successes and failures in your life. Um, I'll do that by playing a game with you, if that's okay, called Snakes and Ladders. So a ladder moment is a success moment that you're particularly proud of, that you've learned from. And a failure moment, you know, that's your snake moment right there. So something that hasn't quite gone right for you, um, but you've learned a lot from. I'd like to start off with you sharing a snake moment with us. So a failure moment in your life where you felt like you're slipping back down the board. Um, I, I think that like there was a point in my football career where I felt like losing was the end of the world. And I, I wrote about this. I actually opened the book up with this was when we lost the league on the last day in 2014, I felt like a total failure total and utter failure I didn't want to play football anymore and it was a it was massive overreaction I mean now I look back it was a real big overreaction because there's always another day you you know you can win the league but at the time I had this really unhealthy relationship with failure did you have your identity wrapped up in that yeah I think my identity was definitely wrapped up in success Um, and so because my identity was wrapped up in success Failure was like, you are nobody, you know, what are you doing? Whereas actually failure is a huge part of success and the journey to success. So like that is definitely a snake's moment where I was just like, I, you know, and then that impacted on my teammates, you know, so those are, that that was definitely one that sticks out massively in my career. So I've got a question there for you, Annie. How did you deal with that failure back then? And how would you deal with that failure differently now? Well, how I dealt with it back then wasn't very good. I I sort of screwed myself. Yeah. You know, I shut down, really. You know, I, I didn't want to play football. I didn't want to go again. It was, uh, you know, the resilience that I have now definitely wasn't there because I was like, I'm done. Um, give up. And then obviously gradually over time, I was like, that's ridiculous. Like you start pre-season again and then you sit down, you talk about why you failed and you go again. And and we did, you know, 2015, we won the double. So it made up for it anyway. But actually it, it took too much time, I think, for me to, you know, really respond from that particular failure. And now I think I'm just much more balanced about failure. Do, does it Does it stop my desire to win anymore no I've not become someone that likes to lose but I've definitely become someone that if you lose or if you fail or you know it, it, it it's you put it in perspective very quickly and you move on failure is also something that like again other people projects onto you so for example Angel City now I've built a football team from scratch it's done 
my mom always says to me, you've succeeded no matter what happens from this point onwards. I go, well, no, I want to win. I want to get to the playoffs at the end of this season. That's success for me. So even within failure, it depends on who, like, what that is categorized as. Because if I say I failed if we don't make the playoffs, someone else will say, what are you talking about? You built the team from scratch, you know? So again, that it, it's, it's just a perspective that then teaches you and allows you to learn and grow and no growth happens in uncomfortable in comfortable situations anyway so sometimes you have to fail to grow and and that's what i've massively realized so i just embrace the journey and the challenge give my best and if my best doesn't succeed first time it will probably succeed second or third time and and that's the way i look at it now seeing failure as a stepping stone just as you mentioned there i think it's really really important for people who are listening to this to to also understand because it when when you're experiencing failure it's like the worst emotions and feelings that that you can ever incur that's that's really inspiring that's really great reading your book when you had qualified as a, a lawyer you you reached out to law firms to try and get a two year placement yeah i mean law is pretty brutal right like law the legal profession is pretty competitive and so i i sort of had this arrogant view that because i'd got a first class and finished top of my graduating class that i would get into any law firm i wanted um <laughs> that definitely was not the case and i was rejected by pretty much all of the big magic circle firms and and there's maybe different reasons for that there is an element of like you know socioeconomic snobbery in law where if you don't go to oxford or cambridge you know or lse you know you're probably not going to get in regardless of your grade but regardless of that um it was very difficult for me to reconcile how i got this amazing grade but was getting rejection after rejection after rejection so my mom at the time, I think she figured that out and she was like, you know, I think she realized I was probably going to internalize a lot of that rejection. So she just hid the, the letters and then started <laughs> to say to me, why don't you apply to smaller firms, like more boutique firms? Why don't you figure out what you want to do eventually in, in law and target those firms? Um, and I realized I wanted to be a sports lawyer. Like I thought it was just such a cool idea to represent athletes and, you know, other people, other stakeholders in sport. So, but a lot of those firms didn't have training contracts. So I took a lot of stabs in the dark really and said, okay, I'm just going to write to the partner and see whether they'd be interested in having me as a, as a player and as a, someone who wants to be a lawyer. And I did that three times and all the all three times I got um, responses back saying we'd love to speak to you, and then off the back of that I got training contracts. So again, like reje rejection is off often a redirection to do something else that will lead you to where you want to get to. I would never have thought to write to smaller boutiques, law, uh, sports law firms, had I not have been rejected so many times by the bigger magic circle firms. So again, it's just a lesson, and, and these are the kinds of lessons that I wanted to put in the book, because until you go through it, you're not gonna have that lesson. 
And nobody said to me in law school, when you finish law school and you get a first class, you're going to be rejected by 20 firms. Like, so this is why the book was called They Don't Teach This, because no one taught me that. I had to go through that little bit of a pain of rejection to figure out, oh, okay, like, let me just focus more on, like, specifically what I want to do and, and, and try and write to the partners that way. And I got what I wanted. There was another door that opened for you, wasn't there? America. Yeah, so um, so obviously prior to working for the, the law firms in in England, I went to America to play professionally. And um, at the time I got a call from the owner of St. Louis, who was also a lawyer who owned law firms. Um, and he said, I know you're a lawyer and I know you've just finished law school. Why don't you come play for my team? But I'll also offer you... Uh, uh, you know, an opportunity to work for my firm in London. And I was just like, wow, it was like God sent, you know, because at the time, like I said, I'd, I'd been through so many rejections on the legal side. I was like, this isn't going to happen. Let me, let me, you know, go to America, play football and, and, you know, try and qualify in America. So I actually took the New York bar twice and failed. Um, so it was really again amazing an amazing sort of um uh serendipity really where the club i i wanted to go to in you know st louis also allowed me to progress the legal side of my career too that's great and what was it like playing in america at that time it was amazing it really was because at, you know before i left for america women's football was very much semi-professional probably even amateur at the time. Um, professional standards weren't really there. Um, I was playing for Chelsea at the time, but Chelsea, you know, had not invested at all in the women's team. Um, so it was just, it was kind of a hobby, really. Um, so to, to, to uplift that and go to America and play profession in the professional league that was being created um, felt amazing. Um, to be paid a proper salary, to play football felt amazing. And then I had a really amazing coach called George Barcelos. He was a Brazilian guy who just had a real uh, infectious appetite for football that really rubbed off on me. So I remember him saying to me, you play like you're in a straitjacket. Like, why don't you play like how you used to play as a kid? Like, just don't think about it too much. And he really released me from a lot of this tension that I had. Like, oh, I've got to score, I've got to achieve, I've got to score. And counterintuitively, by not thinking about it too much, I scored more goals. That's great. So the, the combination of a great coach, a new opportunity at 20, 21 years old to go to another country, um, you know, working for somebody working for a club that had the owner who gave me a law job like all of that it was just perfect and allowed me to really expand my horizons at such a young age that's great and you you had to move i believe from st louis uh to atlanta and how did that come about yeah so unfortunately um the first year at st louis went really well we finished in second place um and then the second year, I think the owner had over-leveraged himself in the first year and probably paid too many salary, too, too, too many high salaries. And so just couldn't invest 
carry on investing sustainably anymore. And so the club announced that they were folding and, you know, it was very sad because I'd really felt quite rooted in St. Louis at the time. And so the opportunity came up for me to leave and go to um, Atlanta. I'd had a very good season as well in the first season at St. Louis. I finished top scorer, I think, certainly of the team and I think in the league at the time, maybe top two. Um, so it allowed me to go to an amazing franchise like Atlanta who had their own stadium and you know I moved into the the and the spare villa that the owner had <laughs> as you do and um it was a great experience I loved Atlanta as a city for me as a young black woman Atlanta was perfect at that time because there's so much history around the civil rights movement there's so much history around the black progression that it allowed me to really explore that side of you know america american history um so i really enjoyed atlanta but as as was the case back then it was such an unstable league atlanta folded at the end of that year too <laughs> so then i was i was then told oh you know you'd be traded to new jersey and i remember at the time i really did not want to go to new jersey and i begged the owner and i said please do not trade me there and he traded me there and I think from the minute I, I got to New Jersey to the, end of the, to the end of the season, I just wanted to leave. I wanted to go back home because I just felt so unsettled. And what, what was it about, what was it about uh, New Jersey? Was it the conditions they weren't investing in the club? What was it about? Yeah, they weren't investing in the club. It was, um, you know, they just did things by the bare minimum. Um, I hadn't heard a lot of great things about the culture of the players. Um, I, I wasn't a fan of New York. Um, or New Jersey, actually. For me, it's really important to live somewhere that I can connect with. Um, you know, London I really connected with, Atlanta I really connected with, New Jersey I didn't, New York I didn't, so... And maybe it was because I just wanted to go home at that point, because I just felt so unsettled, so... There was lots of things that just didn't make it right at the time, and um, it's an element of American sports culture that I've tried to actually change in my role now at Angel City, which is like just providing more security for players. Um, so yeah, I you know that it was an experience I needed, but um, it you know it, I think it was time to come back home after three years. How how have you seen U.S. football change now that you're sporting director of Angel City FC? Well, it's definitely more stable now. The league is ten years old and. There's much more financial stability, although I think in comparison to the rest of the world, it's still very, very conservative in, in its spending. Um, I've tried to impact the, the, the side that I experienced as a player was negative, which was this constant threat of being traded, this sort of anxiety around, you know, having to move without really players being able to control that. Um, so at Angel City, I, I implemented a no-trade culture, which meant that for a year at least, players wouldn't be traded unless they requested to be traded, which really showed a commitment to those players. It showed that we wanted to believe in players. Um, we wanted to ensure that players felt comfortable performing without threat of like, oh, you're gonna, you're not very good, you're gonna go. So, you know, these are the things that. Um, 
I've tried to implement and I think it's worked. I think the players appreciate it. And as a result, you know, I think there's been much more intrinsic value in the performances that they've put out. So one of the reasons why I'm so desperate to get to the playoff is so that I can say, or we can say as a club, well, we did it slightly differently and we and we still achieved. And I think it will encourage other teams to, to do do what's right by players and feel comfortable that it wouldn't it wouldn't lead to failure, it can lead to success. I just want to take um, a moment to kind of look back at your career. Um, the GB Olympics team back in 2021, it seemed like a defining moment for women's football. Um, what impact did that have on you personally, as well as your career as a footballer? Well, I actually remember in the, uh, during the year, the year of the year leading up to the Olympics, um, I just returned from New Jersey. Um, so it was a really difficult time for me. I was very disillusioned with football. Um, and I moved back to England. I moved back to Birmingham to play for Birmingham. Uh, and that didn't really work out because I was studying as well, studying for what they call the legal practice course, which is to, to sort of, the, it's the course that you have to do between your degree and, and training as a lawyer. And that was quite demanding. Um, so I actually went into the Olympics thinking that the Olympics was going to be my last tournament and I was going to retire at 25. Really? Um, Does that sound crazy now? It sounds really bonkers because who retires at 25? But I just didn't see any value in where women's football was at at the time. I found it very unsettling. I wanted to focus on my legal career that was much more secure, paid me better, um, made me feel better as a woman, as a person. Um, so the Olympics really changed everything. It inspired me again. It, it reinvigorated my passion for football. And after the Olympics, I went to Chelsea and never looked back. I was at Chelsea from that point for six years, from 2012 up until 2018. And we won lots of trophies. It's the club I support. I have lots of, you know, close friends and family there. You know, I, I was, you know, had a really good relationship with the likes of Bruce Barker and Michael Emanalo, who were leaders in the, in the, in the club. So the Olympics really was a, was a watershed moment, not just for women's football, but for me and in my career. So it's, yeah, I, I was really grateful for the 2012 Olympics, obviously at home too, you know, in London. And it really made me fall in love with London as well. Well, another sporting event that was only recently attended at was the uh, European Cup final, England and Germany. Oh, yeah. Uh, that date is the 31st of the July, which happens to be my younger brother's birthday. So there's like double celebrations going on, any. Um, oh, wow. So <laughs> did you go to watch it? I did, of course. Yeah, I was there live. And again, just a watershed moment for the women's game. There's been a lot of investment put into the women's game in England over the last 10 years. There's been a lot of investment in the women's national team and the men's national team. And so after back-to-back semi-finals, it was like the opportunity to really cross the line and, and win that trophy. Um, you saw the, obviously the men's team get to the final last year, didn't quite do it. And then the women's team obviously win it. So 
it's really it's really a special story because after 56 years of waiting it's amazing that women delivered the trophy I was so happy for the team but happy for the journey happy for the investment happy for the sacrifices that we've all had to go through for women's football to be where it is now so I think there it just felt like a really seminal moment for the past present and the future of English, of English women's football and and to be part of that journey to be part of that story I just felt so proud unbelievably proud I couldn't imagine how happy the players would have been you know because that they're forever legends now they will always be down in history as the team that won after 56 years so yeah I just felt so proud we had a great day I had a box with my friends and family we went out to the after parties afterwards we celebrated so it was great I, I had a great time that's wonderful yeah that's, that's amazing to see as well I want to just touch on where England needs to go from or women's football needs to go now. We've been quite vocal in the past about what needs to change. But now we've got, you know, you've got this trophy. This is an incredible moment. So what needs to happen? Yeah, I don't know if it's change. I think it's just more evolution of like where the game should be going in terms of like how do you capitalize on this moment so that it's it's not a moment in time. It just becomes an experience, a weekly experience for women's football. My hope is that, and I think it's happening, now you're seeing people buying season tickets for Chelsea, Arsenal, you know, Man City, all the clubs, not just those clubs, all the clubs. Season ticket demand has gone up. I hope that people watch their weekly, you know, watch the women's team, their local women's teams weekly rather than every four years. Because that, what that does is that creates an economy in the women's game in the same way there's an economy in the men's game through weekly, you know, weekly attendances at games. Broadcasters now are showing the games weekly. So you've got broadcasters like Sky and BBC showing women's football on a weekly basis. So the exposure that the women's game has now is amazing. And that will only lead to more investment. It will lead to uh, better professionalisation more professionalization. I think the league should expand. I would like to see sort of 15 teams now rather than, you know, 12. So yeah, these are all exciting things that I think could happen. The one thing I think does need to change is just the diversity within the game is a little bit alarming given that, you know, the UK has a very sort of diverse population. So, and I know the FA are are trying to deal with that, but for me as a former player who, you know, former black player, it's a little bit alarming to see. Where do you go to remedy that? Is it like at grassroots level? How do you go about changing that? I think it's at all levels. I think, as I said, the professionalisation of the game has meant that the game has moved away from the inner cities and some of these neighbourhoods where, you know, lower socioeconomic backgrounds and, and players live but I don't think that's solely the the issue I think there's still quite a lot of unconscious bias at the top level of the game so if I'm a black player that is like on par with a white player and there may be a question mark of why I left a club that question mark works against me far more than it works against the white player right and coaches make active decisions based on unconscious bias. And that's a bit more of a difficult conversation to have, but I think that's a problem. 
And I know that because if I were to, you know, I recruit players, right? So whenever I'm having conversations about certain players, a conversation about, oh, well, what about their attitude comes up? And I say, well, we didn't have that conversation about the other player, right? So we have to deal with some of the unconscious bias in the game. That means that ethnic minorities just don't necessarily get the benefit of the doubt, whereas, you know, white players do. So that there's 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 these things that are multifaceted, multi-layered. It's not one reason, but if you can approach all of these different facets in 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 a in a way that helps change, then everybody will benefit from that. Yeah, that's great. And you can speak from experience as well, which you know is really, really powerful. What advice would you give to young women trying to break into the world of football or media, but feeling unsure about themselves? Yeah, I think the advice I would give is that the opportunity is there, first and foremost. And, and prior to so probably 10 years ago, the opportunity wasn't there. So take confidence in the fact that many women have done it to give you the confidence that you can do it too. And I would say what I always say, which is, you know, develop your self-confidence, your self-validation, so that when you get, when those lights go on and you're on stage or, you you know, you're on the TV, that confidence comes across. Um, Because no one's going to be able to develop that other than yourself. So, uh, you know, that's what I always try to say. Believe in the fact that the opportunity's there and in the same way, you know, the same people that took that opportunity probably felt scared too, right? But it's about the confidence to know that you can do it. That's great. And uh, lastly, how would you like to be remembered for years to come? I would like to be remembered as someone who had a lot of integrity in whatever I did. So didn't compromise what really meant the most to me in terms of like money or you know, compromising my values that I, I definitely believe, you know, I feel a very, hold, I hold very dear to me. I would definitely, I definitely think I'm that person that has a lot of integrity. And if it's going to cost me to hold true to those values, it's going to cost me. And there's a lot of courage in that. I definitely want to be remembered as somebody that was not afraid to go first, to open up the door for myself and other people. And, you know, a trailblazer, pioneer, whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm very proud of that. And, yeah, just someone that tried to have as much fun as I could, really. I think sometimes we forget to have fun. I, th- I, th- I think you're totally right there, for sure. Um, and if you're not enjoying it, honestly, I think that's that's a cue for something as well. I think a lot of people stick to, you know, stick to doing things that don't they actually don't like and it's a waste of time because <laughs> um, life is really short so yeah I think I'd like to be known as someone that you know really loves what you what I do and and that comes across that's wonderful well that's a lovely way to end this episode thanks a lot Annie I really appreciate it thank you